0: Got You Covered, Stories of Modern Modesty, is supported by listeners on Patreon. Become a patron at patreon.com slash gotyoucoveredpod, and continue to support the show on Instagram at gotyoucoveredpod.
1: On a warm California evening at a church social, a young Muslim Hafsalodi's best friend, a Mormon, ran up to her and handed her a t-shirt. She unfurled it, and in big, bold letters it read, Modest is hottest. Hafsa proudly donned the t-shirt for many of her preteen years. It was not only a treasured token of girlhood friendship, but in her own words, a powerful symbol of interfaith support. Nearly 20 years later, Hafsa is the esteemed author of Modesty of Fashion Paradox, a short but densely packed book that expertly explores the history and culture of the modest fashion industry and its major players, as well as the political and religious dimensions of this controversial corner of contemporary fashion. It was a dream of mine to speak with Hafsa when I first read her book only a couple months after I got the idea for this podcast, and I was so honored when she accepted my invitation to share her personal experiences with modesty beyond what she's written about publicly. I hope that her perspectives inspire you to reflect on your own relationship to your body and this funny thing called modesty. For listeners who don't want to hear music, there will be some right as the credits are about to roll in, so feel free to dip out at that point. Let's begin.
0: Hello. Hello. How are you? Sorry, I just trying to layer up these pillows to get a good Yeah, angle. <laughs> you got to
1: make sure that you're like in there and squished nice and comfy. Oh,
0: with my no pregnancy pump. Well,
1: it's so nice to meet you.
0: Lovely I'm so excited to, to talk
1: too. to you. Oh my gosh. So yeah. I finished, um, I read your book once about mm, like seven months ago. And then when I was working on the idea for this show, I was like, I have to talk to Hapsa. So I read it again and I finished reading it a couple oh, days great. ago. You must have had such an intense process of building that book from all of yeah. the research. There's just so much information in there. It's wild. So oh, I'm really great. excited to talk to you about it. I watched a few of your interviews that you've done with other people. And of course, they all talk about sort of the contents of the book. But since your time is so limited here, and I want to make sure that I am really capturing you I really want to spend some time talking about your experiences. I think that anybody who eventually listens to this maybe can go read your book on their own, but there are some great little okay. anecdotes in the book that I want to build upon. Yeah, of course. Um, do you okay. have any questions for me before we start? Um, Nope. Questions. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, normally the question that I ask people is to talk about the religious or spiritual upbringing of their childhood, but... I want to zoom in on a very specific portion of yours that you talk about in the book, which is being a preteen, essentially, in California. You had this friend, Courtney, that you talk about in the book. You share some wonderful anecdotes about her, how she was sort of a a big influence on your understanding of and journey with modesty. I would love to hear you recount a few of those early memories and and sort of what are maybe like the the big sparkly ones in your mind of of who this person was and the impact that she had on you.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, I think I think growing up in faith based communities, um, where modesty is sometimes kind of enforced, if not encouraged, on you know on on your children. I think it can be, I think it can be a, a bit tough to kind of embrace that modest dress code instead of resenting it as a as a young girl, especially living in America, where of course like modesty 20 years ago was not stylish was not fashionable it was you know as a teenager it was all about showing your skin and you know wearing denim shorts and tight tank tops and bodycon dresses and that was the way to be cool and popular and attract boys and and it's not just that that's how society was it's, it's the media we're fed it's all the you know the teen tv shows and the hollywood movies that the kind of costumes that are kind of ingrained into our heads so i think Having other friends who also abide by modesty codes can really help. And for me, it happened to be that that friend was not within my own religious group of Islam, but she was a Mormon, so from the Church of Latter-day Saints. And I actually had a lot of, I lived in Morgan Hill, California, a little town outside of San Jose. And there's quite a big Mormon population there. Um, I was the only Muslim girl in my school. And there were a lot of Mormons. Courtney was just one of them who, um, she was one who I really bonded with. And I think it, our shared dress code, our shared modest dress code really played, uh, played it, uh, it really had a big impact in our friendship. Um, it was something that we both had in common, something that I saw that she didn't really resent or um, try and get around. I know later in life, there there were times where like I'd go to the school dance with a cardigan on and then dance, take the cardigan off because nobody was there. But like with Courtney, it was never, um, it was never like that. She was very... She was very supportive i guess she was very um accepting of of being of dressing modestly and that supported me and so i would go to some of her church socials um they were not always segregated some were some were mixed um like basketball games and just game nights and things like that and at one of them she bought me this shirt that said modest is the hottest and i thought that was the coolest thing i mean i in the book i kind of explore that maybe there are issues with that phrase looking back on it now you know age 30 from like a feminist lens but at that time i thought that was the coolest thing this is a t-shirt with a slogan that is really promoting modest fashion and that's something you don't see in the mainstream in america so uh yeah i write about that a bit in the book that she gave me this t-shirt and it said it in a bunch of different languages like 10 12 different languages and i thought that was the coolest thing yeah i um, missed that bit
1: that is really cool
0: yeah, I don't even know if I included the the language part in the book, but yeah, it said it in like Chinese and French and Spanish and like it just said it in all these different languages, which I thought was awesome. And then when it came time to graduate from grade eight, um, we had like a grade eight graduation and everyone was obviously buying their dresses for that. It was like prom for, for eighth graders. And, uh, you know, everything was like above the knee. And I remember we went to see, Does Sears still exist it so, open? I don't think I don't so. Think yeah. So <laughs> we went to Sears and like JCPenney and we were looking at all these. They had like the prompts dress section, but everything was, um, nothing basically fit with our modesty codes, which for me was like up to the shoulder and below the knee. And for Courtney it was the same thing. So we ended up buying long dresses with spaghetti straps and both of our mothers who knew how to sew, actually Courtney and I knew how to sew as well, but our, our mothers were <laughs> more professional. Um, they both made we went to I think Joanne Fabrics and got these the like chiffon tool type fabrics and um made little butterfly cap sleeves to put on the dresses. So um no I think hers was a cap sleeve. Mine was more of like a satin straight, thick strap. And yeah, just memories like that really impacted how I saw modesty in a positive light. And also as a multicultural like because she was not from my faith based community, I, I think that really um, played a big role in how I view other other communities and other women. And it's modesty can really be this kind of bonding, um, unifying uh, element of a friendship.
1: Yeah, I, I think you put it perfectly. Towards the end of your book, when you revisit that that t shirt, and um, you said that it was an encouraging interfaith symbol, reminding me I wasn't alone. I exactly, love that. Yeah. So. In 2006, you said that your family moved to Dubai, which in itself is a massive change. How did your perspective of modest fashion change from you know the American sort of experience you were having to being in Dubai where not only is modest fashion common, but it's a whole big industry and experience where where every store pretty much is is showcasing it. What what was that like going to Dubai and experiencing that transition?
0: My first year in Dubai, I was in grade nine, and I was actually in an American school. So within my kind of school and school friends uh, environment, it was not all that different. I was in an American school with lots of different cultures and lots of different ethnicities and backgrounds. And I wouldn't say it was in any way like that modesty was more the norm in school. It wasn't. Perhaps less so, because I had none of my Mormon friends with me. Um, but outside, of course, the culture in the Middle East is one of covering up, especially for women who, live, who are local to the region. Um, so definitely yeah, in stores and everything, it's much easier to shop modest fashion, especially during the, the holy month of Ramadan. The, the, the main difference, I would say, is in America, you look for when dressing modestly, you look to layer clothing and um, you, know, you look for long dresses or maybe uh, turtlenecks underdresses or short sleeved T-shirts underdressed, things like that. In Dubai um, and in most of the Gulf, the Arab Gulf states, the abaya is a big staple outer garment. So people just throw that on on top of whatever they're wearing, whether that's like your nighty, pajamas, active wear, or anything else. So that was one of the main differences. It's kind of you don't have to put that much thought into it in in the in the Arab world where we just kind of have this throw-on garment for mixed or segregate or non-segregated or public appearances. Whereas in the West, you're wearing your outfit that you leave the house in is your outfit for the public. So yeah, I think that's probably the main difference. I don't think my views on modesty went through any drastic change or anything upon moving to Dubai. Yeah, it was more accessible. Um, but again, I was in that teenage mentality where I was still kind of coming to terms with my modest dress code.
1: That's really interesting because the other thing about moving to Dubai is that it puts you in the, not necessarily the center, but in much closer proximity to what you later describe as a really interesting political history around modest dress and around hair covering. This was actually one of, I think, my favorite parts of your book. As interesting as it is to learn about the fashion industry itself, I was really interested in the political history of what was going on in, in that region at the time um talking about how covering and even uncovering itself was a political act in the context of muslim majority countries in the 20th century and you've even said yourself in other interviews that that was interesting that was like a really interesting bit of history for you to research as well what was most surprising to learn about that t- that period in history i'm I, i'm still kind of researching that
0: two years beyond publication of this book and i still find it so fascinating I feel like when we see a woman who is veiled or who's like very visibly Muslim, um, you think, oh, you know, she's very traditional and conservative and she comes from a very traditional and conservative family where all her ancestors, her mother, her grandmother, they've always dressed modestly and covered their hair because this is what Islam says to do. Like that's just kind of a naive assumption of when you see a Muslim woman. But then when, yeah, when I really looked into it, it was so interesting to see that actually a lot of these women from this current generation are donning hijabs and dressing more modestly as like a political statement, not just, uh, not just because they believe it's part of their faith. Many of them believe that no, Islam does not mandate head coverings. They just wear it because it's their way of being spiritual or political or showcasing that um, they are modern day Muslims and they can still kind of blend in and fit into society seamlessly with their hair covered. Um, and I found that really interesting. A lot of it is a response to Islamophobia and post 9-11 sentiments in the US, all across the world, let's be honest. Um, so I found that really, really interesting and kind of inspiring. I myself have never viewed hijab to be a mandatory requirement of Muslim women, though I did have one phase where I thought maybe I would start covering my head eventually. I also now think if I were to ever start covering my head, it would be for that reason, for that political reason. And and it's kind of inspirational that like it's just as weighty and as important and as meaningful, I think, of, of doing it as doing it for your faith.
1: Yeah, there's an element that I think you touch on throughout your book and in a lot of your writing, which is that there's sort of this through line through all of history in related to, you know, the politics of women's bodies and how they dress themselves that is so much about. Women advocating for their right to just exist and to make choices for themselves, no matter what that looks like in the context of, you know, their culture, their religion, their politics. Why is that such an interesting and important story for you?
0: I think I, th- I think when I went into writing this book
1: as a modest fashion
0: proponent and like fan myself, um, when I went into it, it kind of was me endorsing modest fashion and saying that this is how amazing it is that there's this modest fashion movement going on. And then also when maybe halfway through or towards the end of writing the book, I realized that actually this isn't about modesty. It's about female autonomy and about making our own choices. And whether that's dressing in a burkini or a bikini, I have to vocalize that choice element for everybody like if I'm talking about modest fashion I can't preach it upon other women who might not necessarily subscribe to a modest fashion lifestyle it's more about having the option to dress however you want without being ostracized so I found that was kind of the biggest um, enlightening aha moment for me and it's kind of stuck with me even probably changed my stance in a lot of my writing since then that it's that I wasn't just writing for the A population of readers who may not know about modest fashion and i'm not just i'm not just informing them about modest fashion and this is why women dress modestly but also emphasizing that modest fashion may not be for everyone and that's okay but as long as we're not being alienated or um, put down for our choices that's the important thing
1: yeah yeah i totally sense that there's even um I, i don't know if you did this on purpose but even the structure of your book kind of follows that thought process Where the beginning of the book is very much like, here's the landscape of what we're looking at. But the further you proceed through it and the more you get into some of the stickier discussions around like how it's being, you know, how people are selling it, how people are participating in it, how people are talking about it. The more you get into those discussions, the more I feel that I feel you thinking about those things and trying to reconcile those things not only just generally having writing a book, but also within yourself too. And I'd be really curious to know how your own experience of modesty and not just your views on it, but your experience of it in yourself and how you dress changed from the time that you started writing the book, maybe to now and where you're at with that. How, I guess, how has the book, yeah. it you know, itself influenced you? I
0: think you? the book and just researching and I think I might, I must have followed like 3,000 modest fashion accounts while researching this book on Instagram. And I actually went a few months ago and started clearing through all of them because it was just too much. <laughs> when I went into writing this, I had a very firm and rigid view of modesty maybe. And that was from my own cultural lens and religious lens and and living in the UAE and having a being part of a friends group that all dressed quite modestly, more modest than me or more skin covering at least. And I think that through writing the book and speaking to so many women and seeing this influx of images all over social media about different ways to be modest and different ways that influencers are appropriating mainstream style trends to cover their skin and cover their bodies. I think for me, modesty has become less about covering your skin, less about the actual fabric used to cover your skin, and more about the overall vibe you're exuding and your attitude and your intentions and your friendliness i think being modest is about being being a humble nice person not just being a woman who might be co- all covered up but is just obsessed with taking photos of themselves and is narcissistic and is just on the hunt for more instagram followers so i think that really that that's kind of changed my experience of modesty it's it's not really about just covering your skin for me anymore
1: yeah, I have to imagine. I mean, I had sort of a similar experience as somebody who is actively creating content in that sphere, where the more people you follow, in in that sort of group of hashtag modest fashion, um, you kind of learn that 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 not not everybody's experience of modesty is as maybe <laughs> wholesome as you would believe. You know, I mean, I'm not you know I'm not trying to tear anyone down, but what I have seen is like some people are exclusively using it for for followers and some people are you know sort of like acting one way online and and not that way in real life and it's hard to see and I I'm curious what you know obviously now you're starting to unfollow people so it's a little different but in your own journey what um what what influenced did bloggers and you know instagrammers or influencers in general what what did they do for you what was the impact? De- yeah, definitely. I mean, half the things
0: I buy, I'm influenced to buy from Instagram, <laughs> to be honest. Like, so they definitely... Don't let Instagram huge, hear that. <laughs> they, de- yeah, they definitely play a huge um, impact. And I think, especially in the beginning of this whole modest fashion movement... Um, yeah, I'm thinking they like, like 2011-ish, yeah. ish, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. They were definitely instrumental. And I think not only for regular modest fashion consumers, but for others. Like, it inspired a lot of women to, to you know, um, take the step to make an Instagram account and, you know, be brave and start taking photos of themselves and putting them online when they may have come from cultures or families where that's not the norm. And I think that's great that it's it, it's been empowering for a lot of women, but also it's been, I think it fuels a lot of insecurities about one's body, one's wealth. For instance, a lot of these bloggers only post, you know, designer things and it, it, it can be hard for, for for normal women to look at, find inspiration from that. But I think there are a lot of positives with, with Instagram and with the social media aspect of the modest fashion movement, but there are also a lot of negatives. And I think it's just important to kind of have a balance and a balanced view.
1: Yeah. I think with anything, you know, online or social media related, it's how you use it and the intention that you have going into it. And, you know, you're only going to get back what you're putting into it. So exactly. Um, What, you know, You don't wear hijab and you write about some of the struggles that you've had moving through religious spaces uh, without sort of the more typical garments. Can you kind of talk about your experiences navigating those spaces without, with sort of more Western style? When the book first came out, or maybe it was coming out a month before it came out, I was
0: was, uh, moderating a modest fashion panel with some Arab athletes who were all hijabi, like Arab modest fashion, modest Arab hijabi athletes. And uh, I was being introduced to one of them. And I think that the PR lady had said, Oh, you know, meet Hafsa. She's just written a whole book on modest fashion. It's coming out next, next month. And the girl just looked at me and said, Oh, what makes you interested in modest fashion? Like I was wearing long sleeves, I was wearing pants. And <laughs> it was just because my hair was uncovered. It was kind of like, Oh, why would she have anything to do with modest fashion? And that was a uh, I, you know, it's quite hurtful in a sense. Um, and yeah, it really taught me that a lot of these these cultural views of modesty are very limited. And um, yeah, and I kind of just said, oh, I, I mean, I consider myself a modest fashion consumer, <laughs> just as you are. Uh, so yeah, it's it's been a bit tough. I feel like, especially in Muslim spaces, often headscarves give you that sense of, not sense, that, that outwardly projection of credibility. And yeah, it's 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 unfortunate, but yeah, it's how, how the community works sometimes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know you write a little, you write just a little section about going to mosques and, and feeling, you know, some of the stares and sneering. I can't imagine that that feels good.
0: So in mosques, typically everyone will cover their head. So I do cover my hair in the mosque, but I think I talked about the sneers, like, if you're wearing nail polish, you'll mm-hmm. get those sneers, And if your hair is showing sometimes like one strand of hair or something, you get those judgments from the mosque aunties.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hmm. E- zooming out a little bit, you know, I one of the things that you kind of repeat over and over towards the end of your book is like, I don't know, man. I don't know if it's going to last. <laughs> Trends come and go. I don't know. But we're two years out now from this book being published. And I personally am not seeing modest fashion go away or reduce in speed or impact. Um, In fact, I'm seeing it not only become more talked about, but also just more common in the silhouettes that we're seeing on runways and in new collections and stuff. What do you think, now that we're two years out from you writing those thoughts, what do you think is sort of like the key thing that's going to sustain that force?
0: I think the financial projections about this demographic that spends on modest fashion, they've been so inspiring to retailers that modest fashion will not go away. It will just be seamlessly, more seamlessly integrated into these retailers and brands collections. I think we've lost that initial buzziness about modest fashion where like every fashion magazine was doing a story or a photo shoot with hijabi model. I think when that happened it was like oh my god a hijabi on a cover of a magazine oh my god a hijabi on walking the runway at milan fashion week and now that's become a bit more normalized like it's it's still happening but it's not as newsworthy it's not as um as buzzy as groundbreaking as controversial so which is good it's i think that's a great thing and yeah in stores as well now when we have modest fashion collections they might not be Separate modest fashion collections with a sign saying "modesty," you know, over here. It's just uh, more of, I think, designers and how they market their fashion as well. They're just, they're definitely keeping that in, in consideration.
1: Mm-hmm. What I'm seeing is more and more sort of aggregator type of platforms that are um, sort of taking the stress out of shopping for modest clothes. Yeah. And uh, one thing I really love about your book is that is the the history it, it provides of how we shop you know, like starting out with smaller e-commerce platforms and then moving on to huge retailers and huge luxury designers creating sort of capsule collections. And now I feel like we're in a different era of like highly specific collections of aggregation of these styles from different brands. Where do you, what's next? Like what comes after that? Such a good question. I mean, I think the aggregator stage is
0: still new, especially for modest fashion. So I think we're still going to see this for a while. I mean, the reflective is amazing and it's it's transformed so much since it was launched. Like if you look at the website now and if you look how it was maybe a year ago, I think what's next, I don't know, personal stylists who are just at your fingertips who can <laughs> who can style for you. I think we still have a lot of space to evolve within the aggregator space as well. So I think like even the reflective, it's it's primarily US based, I think they have the potential to expand globally um and a lot i think what's really successful about a lot of these modest fashion aggregators is they don't limit themselves to one culture one religion or one depiction of modesty they might have jewish founders they might have muslim founders but they're not jewish website muslim website and i think that's really important in not only opening it up to other faith groups but also women of who are not religious at all and who just like modest fashion maybe because it's it just suits their work where Uh, wardrobes or just they just like covering up because it's more comfortable.
1: Yeah, I'm seeing that as well. Um, I talked to I talked to Danielle at The Reflective kind of frequently. And one of the things that she's been talking about is the community based aspect of what they're doing. You know, they're having sort of these like little panel discussions or they'll have like special events and things like that. And it really reminds me of the portion of your book where you were talking about sort of like grassroots Shows In the early days of, you know, a group of people at a college would put together sort of a small fashion show and invite brands. And there's something really good about that, I think, having it sort of be that communal experience, because at least for me, modest fashion has opened me up to relationships with people that I maybe wouldn't normally interact with. And I see that as sort of being the catalyst for continued conversations around this is creating spaces where people from all faiths or no faiths can get together and have this sort of shared interest. Do you have any, any thoughts about yeah, definitely. Sort of community gatherings like that?
0: I completely agree with you. I think this started as a little community grassroots movement. It's become mainstream, but it's still important to have those intimate relationships and those one-on-one um, you know, meetings with other people who, who share your values and share your style preferences and Yeah, I think often the modest fashion boom can get away from us. It's this huge thing now with all these financial projections and all these brands jumping on the bandwagon, and all these designers and like luxury fashion brands making limited edition Ramadan things and modest fashion things. But at the heart of it, it's really the women who have been seeking this kind of clothing, seeking mainstream validation for this sort of clothing for decades. And I think when those women come together, really great things can happen.
1: Yeah, I love the portion of your book where you're talking about by women for women. And just how, you know, I'm thinking about like Marwa attic of Vela Scarves. And um, there were a couple, of, I think you talked about a by addict. I can't remember the name of the founder there. But these were just women who were saw a need for themselves and for the people around them and said, I'm going to make this happen. And I'm going to create this space. and And that's what made them so successful is because they knew what was going on and they weren't, you know, relying on someone else to solve the problem for them, which I think is so cool. I want to uh, uh, highlight a specific quote in your book and then talk to you about it. Um, You said, it's an inner dilemma I'm constantly faced with. Finding a balance between traditional interpretations of our faith and contemporary trends is an ongoing challenge. Will you talk more about that?
0: Yeah, for me, one big example of that is just social media and Instagram in general. I think it's, I I think it's amazing. I'm not, the I'm as much of an Instagram addict as any other (laughs) millennial, but I think it's such a big challenge balancing that time and that energy that you give these apps. And what do I use Instagram for? Like fashion inspiration, but also posting things myself. And like, what are my intentions with posting? Like all of these questions are constantly in my mind. And maybe it's because I explored them so deeply with this book, or maybe it's just the life phase I am becoming you know a mother, but I'm constantly kind of thinking about that now, and do I really need this? Is this benefiting my spiritual journey? This just questions like that are often really impacting how I use social media, how I shop, even like if I want to buy something that yeah, might be modest but might not be sustainable, it might be from Sheehan or pretty little thing, like is this yeah it's modest but does this support the ethics of my religious journey as well in terms of caring for the earth and being sustainable I mean maybe it just comes with age or maybe it comes with just being woke or maybe it after the book I'm just more alert and aware about all these different considerations but yeah I feel like every day I'm finding ways in which my when which I'm exactly what I said I'm facing this inner dilemma between my spiritual ethical religious journey and kind of the calls
1: of modern times. Okay, so with that in mind, if you could write a new edition of your book, what do you think you would include or cut or change? There's a lot I would include. A lot has happened since this book came out. Um, yeah.
0: I think I would include a lot more of the diversity element. This book was, the, the sources were primarily Muslim just because of the where I was situated and just what was happening at the time with hijabi models being everywhere, but I would include a lot more sources from other faith communities. And also, I think I would look a lot more at how Black Muslims have inspired modest fashion and not inspired, have really shaped the industry so much. And I think after, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, really, I realized that I didn't give this demographic enough space in this book, even though so many of, I mean, Halima Adan, the first hijabi model, Ayana, I faith the Project Runway modest fashion finale participant. I mean, there's so many. there. There's a luxury l- fashion a modest fashion designer who shows at London Fashion Week, Deborah Latouche.
1: Latouche, I think.
0: I mean, there's all these. Um, I I would really want to kind of big that up a bit more, especially since the modest fashion industry marketing wise often uses images of white, you know, light skinned models. So I think there's some a bit of colorism in the industry that I would really want to highlight uh, What oh sustainability I'd give a bigger portion and a bigger chunk next time around and also I know I kind of I touched on some of the countries like Egypt and Iran and Saudi Arabia some of those Muslim majority countries but also there's South Asia and Indonesia like there's so many other countries where modesty is really ingrained in the society and they're really thriving in their modest fashion markets as well so I'd include a lot of that
1: I actually started a word document saying things to include in second edition if there ever is. One. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm I am particularly interested in the diversity aspect and not just skin color, body type, cultural, nationality. Yes. And I think also sustainability because yeah, one thing I wish you had touched on more in this version was and you and you kind of do, but the I see that consumers are more and more expecting sort of a sustainable approach from the brands that they buy from. Maybe not exclusively, but I think it has become more sort of commonplace for consumers to expect that. And I think you say it perfectly in the book that this is the thing that if brands want to continue to survive in this space, this is the thing that's going to be important. Because I think that especially for people who are approaching modest fashion from a faith-based perspective, it just doesn't jive with the way that fast fashion is done. So exactly, yeah, very interesting. What is an aspect of modest fashion that you don't see as much in the mainstream that you really like? Maybe it's a silhouette, or maybe it's like a, a trend or something.
0: Can I switch that? Can I give a different yeah. answer? Yeah, there's one. There's one aspect of modest fashion in the mainstream in the mainstream world on social media that I saw so much and hated initially, and now oh, yeah. I'm liking. Like two years later, it's the whole like crop tops on top of like white blouses and. Things like that, like when I first saw that, I was like, "This is ridiculous. Crop tops are not for modest fashion consumers, and you know they just draw attention to the chest, and what is this this isn't This isn't modest. you know that was my <laughs> initial reaction, and I now, two years later, I think I've seen it done really elegantly on some women and and oh, again through Instagram, of course and and now, yeah, it's something I would consider myself maybe when I'm not pregnant of <laughs> uh, <but> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I feel like I feel like social media really has the power to change how how you view certain things and also to check your biases and judgment.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, that's really interesting. I like that you flipped it because I I had a similar (laughs) feeling about that specific trend that I was like, why? But then, you know, I I I think what I didn't like was like the Argyle sweater, like sweater vest. I was not into that. that.
0: I love that. I love it. That's the I love that. (laughs) What I'm still not into is. In the corsets, on uh. one, yeah, I'm not into that. And I think, I don't know, it depends how you do it, but yeah, personally, in my aesthetic wise, I'm not in the corsets and layering.
1: That's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I remember, I think it was like early last year, like maybe towards spring of last year, I was seeing the, the sweater vest over the white butt up everywhere. And I was like, what are oh, we doing? I'm, I'm
0: waiting another two months where that's going to be in again. And that's gonna, All right. I'm, It's going to be rocking that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> awesome. I mean, it's almost fall, right? That's the season to do yeah. it. <laughs> okay. We are almost out of time. So I want to ask one more question, I think. You've expressed in some of your recent interviews that you're much more interested now in exploring more about how clothing is used to portray and express someone's identity or their culture or their faith, rather than focusing just on like the mechanics of the fashion industry and looking more beyond the outer appearance of someone and, and getting into some of these more deeply thoughtful or kind of, you said, soulful topics. What are some some topics or stories in this area that are drawing your attention right now?
0: I think this is just as well like as I've my spiritual journey, you know, evolves. I'm I've been a fashion journalist for ten years, more than ten years. I've written about what people wanna wear, what people what's on the runway, And I I've just become very disillusioned with it and realized that it's all very surfacey and material and materialist consumerist. And so yeah, like I said, I wanted to dive deeper into why certain garments may be trending and what it means for women and i know i just blasted corsets for example why are corsets trending and it's interesting to see that a lot of women are reclaiming that i mean corsets originally were used to restrict women limit their movement and kind of enhance their their bosom shall i say why are women today uh reclaiming corsets is it kind of like a feminist movement is it they're finding empowerment in owning these garments in new feminist powerful ways things like that how women are flipping you know the switch and changing the narrative on um on fashion and owning it for themselves because fashion has historically been a male dominated industry where clothing is designed for the male gaze what's going to make women look hot skinny and attractive and how are women kind of defying that while still looking super stylish uh, on their own terms. I'm happy to not even write about fashion anymore. <laughs> but yeah. just from a fashion perspective, that's that's kind of what interests me now.
1: Yeah, okay, outside of fashion, what are, what are you finding yourself interested about writing about?
0: I think just looking at the Muslim community as a whole, I'm, I've become really interested in talking about issues that impact Muslim women specifically in the West, in the East, whether that's like, Insufficient facilities at mosques or the burkini brands in France, which I guess that is also fashion, but that's very politically charged. I think weaving politics and culture a lot more into my writing is is where I'm headed.
1: It's interesting to see how over time one's sort of definition of feminism changes because it's such a sticky word sometimes for people. I mean, I don't think it's sticky, but I think that you are in a unique position of identifying as that word and then moving through the spaces that you move through, which maybe are more sensitive to that. What are you finding to be your definition of feminism as you sort of evolve into more of these wider stories beyond fashion? There was one
0: quote. From cultural viewpoints, feminism is like the F word, you know, like it's Mm. (laughs) feminism is seen to be this like Western import that's incompatible with like South Asian culture or Islam. There's a quote by an Egyptian author called Aurya Muro. Her book came out maybe one or two years ago called The Greater Freedom, Life as a Middle Eastern Woman Outside the Stereotype. And there's one sentence she says, I woke up to the fact that I was a feminist slowly and then all at once. And it really resonated with me because I feel like it was very applicable to my own journey. Suddenly overnight, I feel like, oh, no, feminism, hooray. You know, before I was very resistant to using that term, I guess, because of all the taboos associated with it culturally. But yeah, how I would define feminism is really just make women making choices for
1: themselves. What was your definition so when it wasn't so clear or when you felt kind of resistant to it?
0: You know, I never even probed it. I, like, mm-hmm. I never bothered to probe it. You just think, Maybe 10 years ago, when I thought feminism, I just thought angry women marching and burning their bras. Like, (laughs) it was always this anger associated with it, which I understand the anger aspect because we haven't been given like equal grounds as men ever, basically. So I understand the anger aspect of it, but I think there's also like a very soulful and enriching aspect to it as well.
1: Yeah, I'm finding you talking more about that in some of your newer pieces that, you know, just highlighting that aspect of like this is about a, a human being's right to self-determination yeah and that being so important
0: i think my mom is not back with my daughter so if you did want me to read anything online from from any of the pages i can if you need that
1: sure yeah there is one thing i wanted you to read okay. and then we can close <laughs> okay perfect. um i'm looking at let me see page 59 it starts. It's pretty much just the first big paragraph. It says, "When I was a child." From there. Okay. How? When? When should I stop? Those just at the paragraphs. end of that paragraph. Yeah. Okay. Like the, you know, it's like a big chunk, okay. and then yeah.
0: Yeah. When I was a child, I used to be in awe of women who wore bikinis while at the pool or beach. They were almost naked, yet were lounging in a public space, and in my childish mind, that was the ultimate antithesis of modesty. These women were asserting their femininity in a way that was rebellious and alluring, and I wanted in, but I kept my secret fantasy to myself. Then, when my baby cousin received a micro-mini bikini on her first birthday in New Jersey, it all erupted, and my elder cousin and I both confronted our mothers, arguing that we too should be allowed to wear bikinis. My mother and aunt sat us both down and explained that the private parts of our body should be covered, not accentuated. When you're married, you can wear whatever you want, our mothers told us, explaining that until then, we would need to safeguard our bodies and our reputations, ensuring we stayed moral and pure. Wearing decent clothes was crucial to this, and bikinis, like shorts, tank tops, and mini-dresses, didn't make the cut. While allusions were made to good Muslim girls, we weren't then made aware of the actual religious stipulations
1: regarding modest dress. We naively thought we just had strict mothers there's so much going on there that i love i really i i think specifically i really love the first image of like seeing maybe it's just in a magazine or maybe you're at the beach yourself but like seeing a woman just like out and living her life and that awakening something in you something rebellious something curious something alive that challenged the way that you saw the world up until that point yeah is so special I think those moments are so important in the development of women is like, it's like almost sort of like your first sort of like, oh, (laughs) I can make choices in the world if I want to. I mean, you can't, you don't have that adult consciousness when you're a kid, so you're not thinking about that. But that little, that just that little sparkle that happened just then, where are you sort of feeling that now in your life, that feeling of I could do that?
0: I feel like often when modesty is ingrained in you so much or if there's this hyper focus on it, whether that's from your culture or your religion, or your family, I feel like you start to object- objectify other women often, and I feel like this is very harmful, like in this paragraph I just read, I feel like I was objectifying women in in some ways, I was looking at their bodies and being like, oh they can they're they're so sexy, and I want to be like." that. Like I was putting the male gaze that we're so used to seeing i like I was viewing them from that male gaze if that makes sense, and I feel like it's only natural because that's the movies we see, the TV shows we see the the books we read that's the kind of narrative that we're we're kind of fed from such an early age, and I feel like it's so important to look beyond that, look beyond the coverage and look beyond the clothing and look beyond the fabric and these are just women making their choices of, of what to wear and how to pr- how to show their bodies, and we're all doing that same thing every day, whether it's
1: covering or uncovering. This episode was written and produced by me, Aidan Kent. The intro is voiced by Kayla Holder, and the music is from Ryan Weber. Become a patron on Patreon and send in comments and questions on Instagram. I would love to hear them both at Got You Covered Pod. If you have any lingering thoughts, please consider leaving a review wherever you found this podcast. It is the easiest way to support the show and it would mean a lot thanks for listening